Hey, I'm Corey. And I'm Lori. And this is the Nourish Circle Podcast. Join the band as we gather in our Nourish Circle and talk all things weight-inclusive, haze, non-diet, and whatever else is nourishing us. This episode is sponsored in partnership with the Weight Neutral for Diabetes Care Symposium. The Weight Neutral for Diabetes Care Symposium is an online training to truly help professionals learn about the intersections of diabetes, disordered eating, stigma, and health behaviors. It will offer all health professionals who work in diabetes care a chance to explore a weight-neutral approach and how this paradigm offers effective care and treatment for patients. The symposium focuses on the intersections of weight stigma, diabetes, eating disorders, and more. Learn and connect with the 16 speakers from around the world who will accelerate your understanding of the nuances and intersection between counseling, diabetes, and weight neutral care. Registration is now open and until April 30th, 2019, you can access the $100 savings for early bird registration. See show notes for a link to the www.wn4dcsymposium.com. CEU credits are also available. Jerry Caston loves food. It empowers all he does. For nearly 30 years, Jerry has been enhancing people's lives with practical and pragmatic advice on how to enjoy the deliciousness of food in order to improve their health. It's his passion for the advocacy that led him to be a trailblazer in nutrition science, culinary arts, teaching, and media. Jerry exemplifies the dedication to the profession and the ability to chart new directions and received the Riley Jeffs Award in 2018, which is the highest honor of the Board of Dietitians of Canada. In this episode, we talked to Jerry about receiving the Riley Jeffs Memorial Lecture Award as we have watched it over and over again. And we will provide the link to you in the show notes and what it was like being in a room full of folks who aren't quite health at every size and receiving that award. And then what has happened since receiving that award in terms of any contacts or connections that people have made um, in terms of winning that and any advice that Jerry had for clinicians that are working away from colonialism, patriarchy, misogyny, and weight-centric approaches either in their work or in their personal lives as well. And finally, we talked to Jerry about ways that he is coping through working in this profession. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Um, hello, Jerry. It is so nice to have you here with Lori and I. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. And um, we were just you know, chatting about your Riley Jeffs uh, Memorial Lecture and Obviously, we just want to pick your brain about that whole experience and what's transpiring for you. And, you know, I'm, I was saying I'm a bit starstruck because, you know, way back when I met you through Jackie Jingros was having a health at every size. I don't even know what it was called, symposium or a meet and greet. And there were some really, really impactful people in that room. And I didn't even know I was so fresh. I didn't even know what power was in that room back then. Um, so it's just so exciting to be here with you. Yeah, it was a super exciting meeting. It was, and I wish we kept doing them because that was so much fun. But there would probably be way more people in that room now, so it might be a little yeah, I think so. difficult to manage. Um, so yes, um, we're going to have links to that Riley Jeffs Memorial as well as the article that you um, did with the DC Journal because that having that written copy, oh my goodness, I keep referring to it. So we will make sure we have that uh, linked for folks that, that want to read it. But just, you know, as a little sort of introduction, we just like to give you the opportunity to share any identities or privileges that you want the audience to know or be aware of and sort of the framework and references that you are speaking from with us today. Yeah, and that's fairly easy for me. Uh, because I'm a cisgendered queer man, and I've been racialized as white uh, because of my English, Scottish, and German heritage. So um, 
that's yeah those that's all of my identities and privileges i'll just they're, they're easy to wrap up well thank you for sharing that with us it just i find it's just you know somewhat new to me to be able to understand what those privileges and those references are. And I really loved through the Riley Jeffs Memorial, you were also talking about ancestors and paying homage um, to the land. And that's something that really, really, really hit me hard because I thought, oh my gosh, I really need to learn more about that. Um, so I'm just curious as kind of an added question here of what has helped you on that journey to be more aware and sensitive um, to those, those aspects of the work that we do? Really, it's just my life course. Um, that when one is presenting, um, it's easy to itemize those. Uh, but through your life course, uh, of course, I've always been queer. And so that gives me some insight into... Um, into uh, like i would never have expected all of the things that have happened for the lgbtq community to have happened if you spoke to the 16 year old me and told me that people would be able to marry and that there would be human rights protections all across canada including in the constitution i would have been surprised <laughs> and part of that and having lived through that change has made it, has provided some background insight for me as I learn about other forms of oppression. And so uh, one of the key things for me was working for a time for the First Nations Health Authority, uh, first for actually uh, First Nations and Inuit Health of Health Canada, and then to be part of the new First Nations Health Authority when it was launched here in British Columbia. And the insights provided of how racialized the uh, discrimination against First Nations people has been uh, it was all news to me. I think for many of us, the news of the residential schools and the stories thereof were quite shocking because we all lived through that time and didn't realize that that was going on. Mm -hmm. And so to have it presented to us was, uh, well, more than surprising. It was horrifying. Yeah, I mean... There's so many things there you said that I I really too have not experienced personally, um, especially being cis hetero female, white privilege. Um, I I can't even speak to what it feels like personally to be in certain positions or to be identified as certain um, identities, and you know some of those things like I I get this anger and Lori and I've been talking about this too about this anger of like why didn't someone tell me but then at the same time like you said even just with um, the gay rights and marrying and you know sometimes you wouldn't believe because it wasn't something that has happened to you but I have you know associated with that part of the culture of just being part of this generation so um, you know the part about just being on this life journey and I think as folks come to health at every size, it's just remembering that to, to help manage that anger. We often feel working in this profession to, to just know it's a life journey and you, know, you don't know what you don't know. So um, to, to be able to do that and, and look at it that way is so wonderful that you're here with us sharing that story. So thank you for sharing that. And I think life circumstance has informed it too because – uh, more recently, we have Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. and we have uh, the Me Too movement. And what excites me about these things is that certainly they're anger-making, but as well, it's the excitement that we can actually talk about these things. Yes. And that's what I think, you know, it's very upsetting, but over time, I believe changes are happening and things are getting better. 
Amazing. And I think there's a lot of pushback and we see that um, all over the world uh, where we have what are currently termed populist governments being elected. And it seems to me that that's the, or perhaps I should say it is my hope <laughs> that that's the last gasp of, you know, white hetero male patriarchy dominance. Wow. We shall see. <clears throat> we have lots. We have lots of life left to live. We do, don't we? And it seems like um, um, as there's always that um, kind of swinging of the pendulum, right? Like voices come forward, and then there's the pushback, and then voices come forward, and there's the pushback. But I feel like I personally feel like there's kind of hope of moving forward. And mm -hmm. I think the way you've so articulated the change over your life of how things have come forward. I think that gives hope in that. Indeed. Um, so I know we were, um, we've mentioned the Riley Jeffs Memorial um, a little bit, um, and we're gonna get into that a little bit further, but if we were standing beside you when you found out about the Riley Jeffs Memorial Lecture Award, what went through your head in that moment, and maybe even sometime later when you processed it a bit more? So this is a really interesting question because um, if you review the Riley Jeffs Memorial Lecture Award, what you'll see is that it won't come as a surprise to the recipient mm -hmm. that uh, the, re <clears throat> the nominees have to provide a curriculum vitae, they have to write a letter about their, um, about the way that they practice and uh, there, there's a great deal of collaboration with the nominators. And so certainly um, it was good news when I was contacted uh, and, let, and uh, they let me know that I was the recipient of the award. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a surprise. And so if you were standing beside me and uh, wanted to know what, was going through my head. First off, if you were standing beside me, you would have been standing next to the tracks in East Vancouver because I was out and about on a walk <laughs> and uh, I was contacted on my mobile phone. And so it was, it was a lovely sunny day in East Van, but I was out over in <laughs> like really down, literally right beside the tracks and uh, the chair of the board of directors contacted me and let me know that it was the award recipient. So in some ways it was um, just kind of a relief, uh, certainly because uh, there would have been other nominees and who had to go through the, the nomination process is, there's a fairly extensive nomination, nowhere near that of uh, Dietitian of Canada Fellowship, but it's still a significant process. And so there's some relief. Um, and for me, it was uh, uh, quite exciting because I had, the, the nomination was specifically because I uh, wanted to present the lecture award, if ever, here in my hometown. Oh. And so that was very exciting for me wow. to present in Vancouver. And then last but not least, the immediate thought, the immediate thoughts following that were, oh my God, this is gonna be a lot of work. Now I have to write this Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's, you know, it's a 45 minute lecture. And first off, 45 minutes is certainly no problem for me to talk, as you'll see. But um, it's really a matter of, I knew that I would have to really edit uh, my words in order to stay within that uh, 40 to 45 minute uh, time frame. Yeah, so getting everything you wanted to say down so concisely, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's it exactly. Uh, it's been, that was, writing the lecture wasn't hard, editing it down to 40 minutes, that was challenging. I bet. How long was it to start with? Uh, closer to an hour. Wow. And was there yeah, any? They really do. They really do need to have it 
around 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes, because the conference is really well-timed and very efficiently run. And so they really do need people to stick to their timeframes, mm. uh, as you may have noticed in things like the award ceremonies and things like that. Things that are fairly flexible, even then, are quite efficiently run because Dietitians of Canada does an excellent job of uh, maintaining the efficiency of the conference. Yeah, they're not the Oscars, are they? <laughs> Were there no. any complaints that you took out from your first draft that you maybe wanted to throw in now? Um, nothing really leaps to mind. Uh, certainly there were things that I took out. Uh, I know that I took out a big chunk of the information around BMI. And uh, because as, as you'll recall from the lecture, I was quite critical of BMI. Uh, mm -hmm. But I went into a much more detailed critique and I took some of that out. Uh, and I think really it's just, I didn't take out a lot of the themes. I felt like I presented all of the themes. I just presented them much more concisely and really edit out superfluous talk. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's just, I, I think I cried the first time I watched it. The second time I had goosebumps. The third time I was like you said, the excitement of, oh my gosh, I wish I was in that room and you presented just oh, to see the reaction of everybody. I would just love to have seen that. Maybe you wouldn't have been able to tell based on the lighting um, in your eyes. That might have been hard. But um, what was it like to be on, at a national conference in a room full of dietitians who either practice haze, are aware of it, are transitioning, or who call themselves kind of like the anti-non-diet dietitians. Um, we're seeing a lot of that in, in social media, dietitians that are standing by weight-centric approaches. Um, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, it's interesting that you've really outlined people like that because the first part of the sentence is like in a room full of dietitians then yeah. <laughs> who either practice or it's kind of all those added, all those uh, criteria sort of add up to a room full of dietitians, which is what it was. That that um, as as you'll be able to see in the recording of the video, um, there are still parts of the speech uh, where I'm quite obviously nervous, or maybe it's just that I'm obviously nervous to myself. But I really see there are times when I've found it. Um, challenging to speak mm. and so uh, it's really about just going on stage in front of a whole audience of peers because it is quite a sizable audience it's a large ballroom uh, and I, th I think it holds like 700 people or something and is full <laughs> so it's a big uh, it's it's a big deal because you're a room full of dietitians, and so these are and it's really a matter of I feel passionately about what I was speaking about, and that's what I wanted to communicate to my peers, and so then it's just a matter of talking. Uh, it doesn't matter all that much who you're talking to. And certainly, as you likely know from standing on the stage, <laughs> when you're on a stage, you really can't see much. You know that there's a bunch of people out there, but the lights are so bright uh, from the video and things like that that you really, really can't see. So that doesn't matter as much as just sort of the knowing of here I am speaking to my peers. What has your experience been since that day? Um, can you share what you felt in the room, what folks said to you after, and anything else that has come up for you since the conference? Um, it's really been tremendously positive uh, that uh, in conversations with Dietitians of Canada, there has really been a positive response and perhaps I am fortunate enough to have been talking about 
the right thing at the right time. Because uh, really, honestly, I have had nothing but positive feedback. So that I was expecting to receive negative feedback. And maybe the folks who disagreed with what I was talking about simply haven't spoken to me or written to me. But I truly have received nothing but positive feedback. Um, Many people did comment that this was timely, that it's time for a shift in practice. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's good news because it is time for a shift in practice that we need to discard the weight-centric practice model and move to a more neutral model. And that that would be good. (laughs) If the lecture facilitated that in any way, uh, it's really, really challenging because when people... uh, watch the lecture if they were there or if they're watching online or whatever it's easy to get caught up in the moment and then you fall back to the um toxic pool of weight bias that permeates society and that's when it becomes challenging particularly if concepts are new to you and you're not quite sure how to proceed. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to include in my lecture uh, dietitians who are working in weight-neutral ways and working against this weight bias paradigm because it would give people tools that they could draw upon to learn more about how to proceed because that's the biggest challenge and uh, I'm sure that you two know what it's like to stumble through that in the early days when you realize I can't do this anymore I can't talk to people about weight loss Mm -hmm. and what do I do how do I proceed what what do I talk to them about? How can I practice? And so that's one of the things I actually like about the written version of the lecture is that it gave me the opportunity to provide an enormous number of links as well as a variety of reference articles that show people not only means of proceeding, but is just a quick dip into um, some of the peer-reviewed literature that's available on this topic. And, of course, a lot of what I reference are review articles and foundational articles. So if people go to that reference list, then they get a deeper discussion than one can provide in 40 minutes in a lecture. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love the word that you use, stumbled, because I think, I know for myself, when I was moving into this paradigm, that's what I felt like I was doing all the time, was stumbling. Am I saying this right? Should I be thinking about this? What do I say? How do I act? Um, That's so exactly the way I felt when I first started. And while people feel like that, I think we need to encourage them to do that, Mm -hmm. because... I believe that most listeners can read intent. Um, not always, because mm-hmm. there, there are some, some presentations I'm critical of. <laughs> it's, it's exactly the same. Well, it's not exactly the same. It's of a, uh, of a sameness to Me Too movements, to Black Lives Matters, to realizing that the way that we've always done things is inappropriate and we need to change how to do them. And so we want to try. And I think that is well read by people that you are talking to and who are listening to you is the, uh, I, I feel like people can read intent and, you know, sometimes it gets, um, it gets dismissed by naysayers as political correctness. But um, 
one of my favorite quotes is actually from Lucy Affermore. I'm not sure who who said it originally. Maybe it was Lucy. I don't know. But she says, um, political, rec political correctness never stopped anyone from saying anything. It just makes people realize that there are consequences to ways of saying things. Mm. Well, that's cool. I haven't heard that yet. I think it's just so important as, you know, as immersed as I am in health at every size and, you know, getting away from that weight centric approach, I still do have a million questions. And, you know, even just listening to your lecture and then reading it, there were so many resources there that may, may or may or may not have been aware of, but it just, even having that refresh and, and knowing your community is out there and knowing that we're all coming at this at different levels and experiences and that you're never going to have all the answers but just being able to be vulnerable and to say something and and just be aware that yes there may be consequences like that quote um, you shared with us but it's being able to process that and then you know like you even said re-watching your lecture you learn from those things and not get stuck in the fact that you said something wrong or you don't understand because I think that is what sometimes I see numbing dietitians is they, they don't speak, they don't stand up for what's going on in their workplace because they're afraid either for their job or they're afraid of not saying it right or not having enough knowledge and then nothing changes. And, um, and I find that that can be so numbing to our profession. I think that's really true. And I agree. People just have to get out and try and yes, likely you'll make mistakes. And one never knows where one is going to end up. I work with, uh, I do volunteer work with uh, the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center here in Vancouver and uh, do volunteer dietetics with them. And I meet a number of trans men who are tasked with losing weight in order to access surgery. And so here I am, a health at every size dietitian, and I find myself working with people uh, in order to lose weight because that is the only way that they can access their surgery. That's getting better, and there are other speakers around who've talked about that, and there is definitely pushback. Uh, but it takes you to this odd place where you work with people while trying to acquaint them with the knowledge that weight loss is unlikely to be sustainable, but they have a critical need for even short-term weight loss because the surgeons don't care whether you keep it off or not. They just want you to be at a certain weight in order to access surgery. Yeah. And so that you never know where you're going to end up. All of a sudden, you end up doing weight loss counseling. <laughs> it's like, well, I never expected that again. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I think, you know, Lori and I have had these conversations too about meeting folks where they're at and definitely that's a hard one to navigate when, you know, we have that um, even with like knee and hip surgery. Um, a lot of referrals when I worked at the family health team were, uh, surgeon will perform surgery when client loses X amount of weight. And you know how, how immobile that person is and how much pain they're in. And you're looking at them and you're going, okay, how do I do this? How, how can I be with this client and help this client? And, and it's really just processing through how we do that without feeling like we're losing our values, but at the same time, not projecting our agenda on that client. Yeah, it's really challenging. I've had the same experiences. I've always worked with people. And I think one of the keys is knowing your coworkers, your colleagues, because once you find physiotherapists who come at, uh, who also come with a weight neutral approach, then for the folks who are working with hips and knees and being told by surgeons that they need to lose weight and who are in pain, some of the things they can do are work with physiotherapists because 
a lot of it has to do with strength. I just had this conversation with students the other day. It's like, oh, well, people have to lose weight because of their knees. It's like, no, what they need is strong muscles that support their weight mm -hmm. so that they are strong enough to bear it. And that's where uh, physiotherapists can have this dramatic input in working with people to strengthen their muscles in ways that will minimize their pain. Mm. Yes. It's, I mean, and that's sort of the, the next question around, I, I can see, you know, having been trained in a system that I don't think has really changed much since I was in school, maybe a little smudge of it, um, but coming out at war, you know, Lori and I hosted a retreat uh, a few weeks ago and dietitians who are close to retiring just saying, I've had enough, I, I need a change. So folks that have, are going to watch and continue to watch or read um, your, your lecture I, that are kind of new or have been searching for this but didn't know what it was called, um, that are working away from colonialism, patriarchy, misogyny, weight-centric approaches, I think often we get very overwhelmed at how much you know and the experiences you've had and, and being able to feel like, okay, where do I start? It's so great. You've provided all of those resources. But one thing to follow up with that is, is how do you support yourself and cope or have coped through the transitions you've made in your practice as well as um, just the continual learning and adventure you're having with it? What, what keeps you grounded? I think in part what uh, grounds me is being a big old queer, that I have lived through similar stuff and I know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that it's not the train, like they say. It's, there's, if you just keep on keeping on, uh, then first off, as I said in the lecture, just chart what you do. Mm -hmm. that I've found that to be an amazingly liberating idea because someone gets referred to you for weight loss and you just talk to them about healthy eating and about physical activity, uh, about spiritual development, about you know, good mental health. You talk to them about all those things and you just chart that. And I have never gotten feedback on charting that and so just keep working away and that's in a contract position where I guess officially I could lose my job but it's you know just doing it means that you can think of the chart as an educational tool for the reader in the future and also I feel like that's who I'm charting for mostly. I'm charting for myself in the future so that when a client comes back, I can see what we did together. Mm -hmm. And that really helps me just work in that environment to say, I'm the main person who's going to be reading this. So I'm just going to write a little note to myself about like what we did today. And the other thing is just to keep up that water dripping on stone that, you know, do we need to have a scale in the waiting room? Do we need to have discussions around why we have these big stand up, really expensive triple beam scales when they're no more nor less accurate than the spring scales that people step onto? Do we even need scales? If we, if you feel we need scales because we have to like, calibrate dosages of something what are the you know when do you give people one cc more of a medication what is the window that needs to be opened in order so is it five pounds is it 10 pounds is it 15 pounds how much leeway is there when you're doing things like calculating dosages so I would wager 
that there are very few people in North America who don't know what they weigh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, can't we just ask people how much they weigh and tell them that we're calculating a dosage or whatever and then calculate it based on that? And is that within the, the uh, window of error for those medications? If indeed, you know, there are very few medications that are dosed by weight anymore. Uh, and those, you know, health at every size leaders have developed uh, lists of medications that do vary by weight so that people do get dosed correctly. So it's just a matter of carry on, carry on for me that because of my life experience, I know that things will change. And so I just keep practicing. And if push comes to shove, I know that I have good peer-reviewed literature that shows that the way that I'm practicing is appropriate. And I know that there is also good peer-reviewed literature that shows that weight loss is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so if people say, why didn't you tell my client to lose weight? It, the answer is because I know that weight loss cannot be sustained. You know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, what we're hearing is, is that charting. And I, I love um, in the article you wrote, which we'll make sure we post for folks of, of how that's so important and how to make that impact. But also just going back, seeing how we are an evidence-based profession is that we have that research to support what we're doing, how we're doing it, as well as the why, and offering that alternative uh, for people who, who, who've never really been exposed. And I just love the way you said it just made me think of dietitians who almost feel like their practice has to stop when they learn about health at every size or using a weight-inclusive approach or gender-inclusive, neutral, and often they feel like, well, I don't know enough, so I have to stop doing everything. Um, but the way you were saying it just made me think of, no, it's just part of the journey. And there's always people who need you for where you're at. And there's nothing wrong with just even asking the questions of, well, why do we have a scale out in the hallway? Do we need to? Um, we don't have to overcomplicate it. It's true. And I, I think... Um you know, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges I had early in my practice in this manner was the day that I was speaking with a client and uh, they were in for weight loss and I told them basically, I don't do weight loss and here's why I don't do weight loss and, you know, here's the anticipated outcomes of weight loss and went through all that with them and Basically, they thanked me for my time and said, I need to go and talk to someone else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was very much taken aback. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but that's, that's a reality. And I think that comes back to uh, you saying that we have to meet people where, we're, where they're at. Mm -hmm. Over the long term, I have found that most people actually aren't all that interested in losing weight. They're interested, no, they're interested in what they perceive the societal benefits of weight loss to be. Yes. Uh, their actual body weight is not all that important. And that's where I have always, I developed this mode of practice, which is to talk to people about you have this future body, and this future body is a different size. And so what is it about that future body? What is it able to do that today's body can't? Mm -hmm. And that has opened up this whole big door for me because people start to talk to you about that future body will sit, fit into a size seven that future body will be worthy of love or will be able to actually access 
relationships or this. And so it really helps clearly delineate what it is the the underlying reasons people have for the desire for weight loss. And then you can talk about those reasons. You can talk about what's better about a size seven over a size 12 or a size 24. Why can't you access love? And will weight loss actually let you access love? Because yeah, there's a ton of articles out there about I lost all this weight and my life was still a mess. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so it allows you to address the reasons and it also helps me to clearly delineate <clears throat> excuse me to clearly delineate my own practice because I can talk to people about food and about weight and about eating but I don't feel qualified to talk to them about their emotional experiences and so that's where I can draw a line and say I can counsel you to this point, but beyond that, we need to move to another professional who can speak more reliably to your emotions or to your physical ability to exercise or to someone who can help you with spiritual development. Because as I said, it allows me to find out where I can help people and where I need to draw in colleagues to help them. Mm -hmm. Wow. I could listen to you talk all day. Right? <laughs> That's very generous. I'm sure um, some people are not given that choice. No. <laughs> <laughs> they just have to listen to me talk all day. Well, I think this is probably the podcast I've been the quietest on because I just keep sitting here nodding my head and we're not on video. So you just, it's <laughs> yes, yes, everything. Um, so um, one thing, Thing we like to kind of end on time together with is Corey and I are working on building a nourished circle. So that's the name of the podcast and um, some other stuff that we do. So we like to ask everyone um, who we're speaking to, can you tell us what is currently nourishing you? The things that currently nourish me, well, one is uh, just this past Friday night, we had a lovely gathering here at my home, actually. And uh, they, I don't actually like this title, but there have been a number of get-togethers for dietitians of late, and they're called Dine and Dash. And I don't actually like that because, you know, too long in the restaurant industry where Dine and Dash has a very specific and unpleasant meaning. Yes, it does. And, <laughs> so anyways, uh, I think I was thinking, how about Dine and Chat? Ooh. That's lovely. Yes. Because that's really what it was. And so what these Dine and Dashes are is it's dietitians getting together in, in usually a pretty small group and eating and talking. So there's the whole aspect of breaking bread together and eating together. And we know how good that is for people's spirit. Mm -hmm. And then uh, for me, you know, it's just a chance to show off my lovely home and also you know motivation to clean it up <laughs> there's just nothing like having people coming over to make you really like get out the mop <laughs> do that stuff that you don't do that regularly uh if you're a single man living by themselves <laughs> so anyways um these dine and dashes have been just great there was one a few months back uh, a local oncology dietitian had published a cookbook and so she uh, featured a lot of uh, dishes from that cookbook and uh, there was another one where they all went out to uh, North Shore um, like an eating establishment on the North Shore and had a lovely meal together and so uh, Anna Briscoe and myself, who co-teach the foods course for the dietetic students at UBC, we offered this Dine and Dash for folks to uh, come and learn about the dishes that we cook uh, in that dietetics class. Wow, and that's so cool. It, it's, I highly recommend it. It's like started up locally because I just posted a notice 
and uh, we had about 10 people, so 12, including Anna and myself. And it was great. Anna and I uh, cooked up a storm. My kitchen lends itself well to uh, sort of having people over and chatting because I have my stove and fridge and everything on one side, and then the other side is a very large stone island uh, that people can pull chairs up to. And uh, so we can do cooking demos, we can just chat with people while we prepare food. And it was truly a delight. It was mm -hmm. just so wonderful to have people over and to, to cook for people, because that's always what I've done, as, as you likely know, as a cook before I was a dietitian. And um, then once all the cooking's done and it's time to eat, then it's just such a pleasure to share food with people. And just uh, for me, uh, it was great to move from group to group and sort of chat and circulate and just really have a good time. So I really highly recommend that. Uh, buy another title. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that's uh, nourishing me is the same, same old thing that always does that I've already warned you about is just talking. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of talking. I'm a public health dietitian, so I go out and I speak to groups a lot, and uh, I also work at UBC, and so I get to work with students and I get to talk to them uh, about things that I'm passionate about. It's lovely. Of course, my favorite course still is the cooking course. Mm -hmm. But I have another course that I really enjoy teaching and hope I can continue teaching. And that's <laughs> got an onerous title. It's called Critical Perspectives in Consumer Food Practices. Oh. And it's, um, it's a course how do people choose food? And so I really love it because it allows me to talk to students about really large soci sociological issues. So we get to talk about Foucault and power in society, and we get to talk about Butler and the performativity uh, of identity and we get to talk about food security and food insecurity, and we get to talk about ethnicity and how that impacts food choice. We get to talk about gender and who does food work in our society and whether or not that's changed over you know, the decades. And it's just really a delight uh, to interact with students and to talk about things after they've read some of the course readings because you know a lot of course readings are really foundational things like Butler and Foucault and uh, things like Marjorie DeVoe's work on food work in families and it's just really enriching to talk to students so talking you know talking nourishes me so that's why you said yes to um, being on here with us. So, you know, oh. so now we know. <laughs> now we know that possibly you would be welcoming if we asked you to come back uh, and talk more with us. Um, that's so wonderful. And gosh, Lori, I'm sure you're feeling this too. I wish we were closer to you because I would totally come to that class. Oh yes, uh, I was like, I, I want to come to dining. I know. Yeah, and that too. And I think you should offer an online version because I would totally sign up for that. Um, well, and you guys just have to establish, you know, a dine-in chat in your own locales. Yes. Ooh. We're close enough to each other that we will have to do it, Lori. You should. Oh, yeah, and then, and then tasks, task an attendee with hosting the next one. <sighs> wow, yes. so smart. <laughs> and then we can travel to BC and come visit yours. Yes. Yes, indeed. Putting that on my list, my to-do list. Well, thank you so much for being part of our Nourish Circle as we form it. And I'm sure lots of people who are new to you are going to wonder how can they stay in touch and continue to learn and connect and hear you talk. So is there anywhere people can find you and connect with you that you want to share? 
certainly they can connect with me via the University of British Columbia. All right. um, I have just segued out of private practice. Uh, and so uh, I currently have two jobs. I work for Vancouver Coastal Health. And in the article you share, my email address is listed there. Uh, because uh, there are a couple of resources that are not publicly available that I've offered through, uh, you know, offered people to email me and I can provide those resources. So my email is actually included in that article. So, uh, and uh, off the top of my head, I don't actually recall which email I provided. <laughs> but certainly people can always contact me via email. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Although I should also comment that I rarely reply quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you guys probably are well aware of that. <laughs> uh, I tend to reply after about a day or so because I do my email work first thing early in the morning. I get up really early, usually around five or six, and I do a bunch of email work and then I don't really work on it until the next morning. Well, I can understand why your Jerry's List, or if people aren't aware of Jerry's List, has been this amazing listserv that you've offered to dietitians, and I'm not sure if you have other professions on there, but I have found that so amazing and inspiring and such a way, I know you started it for local, but um, just even the, the things that are offered online, I know you share with people. So I can imagine that is a tremendous amount of work and you do it so Oh, so wonderfully. So thank you for doing that work for us. No problem. And I always bug you too. So you, 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 I mean, to me, a day is still fast. So thank you for, for offering that 24 hour window. Some days a week goes by and I'm like, what? Didn't they just send that to me yesterday? I'm often getting emails from Corey saying, just a reminder in case this got buried in your inbox. <laughs> yes, indeed. Because that does happen. Oh, I, well, that's why I say it like that to anybody because it happens to me very easily. And I still haven't figured out a way to organize that. So that doesn't happen. But people are welcome to email. So, yes, we will post that all. Um, and so thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure and yes, we would love to continue to chat, but, uh, we would gladly have you back to, uh, to continue this conversation. Yes, well, as you know, when they made time, they made plenty of it. So exactly. Today's episode is brought to you by our join the band Teespring store. Click the link in our show notes to check out our badass non-diet dietitian merchandise. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.